morning, friend. Welcome. Welcome to the Inner Sanctum. This is Raymond, your host, teller of strange tales. Come in, if you dare. Costello, stop all that noise. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. That's with a U.S. Marshal and the spell of gun smoke. Cab Calloway, blues in the night. You are listening to the classic gas radio show. I'm your host, Sheldon Snow, taking you back to a, uh, well, a simpler time with the classic radio programming from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. So sit back, relax, don't think about yesterday, don't fret about tomorrow. Just relax on this Sunday uh, going to start off with The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, um, featuring Raymond Chandler's Private Eye. It, aired, it first aired June 17th, 1947, on NBC Radio. Uh, Van Heflin playing Marlowe. It was actually a summer replacement for the Bob Hope Show, and uh, the first story was Red Wind. It only ran... Um, till December, actually September 9th, 1947 on NBC. Then it moved over to CBS where um, Gerald Moore was playing Marlowe and it became probably one of their uh, most popular shows and uh, really the one of the strange things about it was that even though it was extremely popular on CBS, it didn't have a sponsor for most of its time on the air. Uh, 1950, for a short time, the Ford Motor Company sponsored it, but really didn't have a sponsor. Being as popular as it was, it's really kind of unusual. Anyway, here is Philip Marlowe and the Red Wind. This is the original broadcast, June 17th, 1947. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day. See your dentist twice a year. Lever Brothers Company presents the Pepsodent program, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Pepsodent presents Philip Marlowe, Hollywood's famous private detective created by Raymond Chandler. Philip Marlowe, tough, cynical, private eye of Murder, My Sweet, the sardonic, case-hardened detective of the Brasher Doubloon, the Lady in the Lake, and the Big Sleep. You've seen him in action in all of those top-flight mystery pictures. Now, in order that you may continue to enjoy this exciting mystery series, Pepsodent brings you the adventures of Philip Marlowe on the air with a cast of noted radio players and starring MGM's brilliant and dynamic young actor, Van Heflin. 
Now families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with Irium. New fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new cool minty flavor. It's the three-to-one favorite over all other toothpastes. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is the favorite three-to-one. Families from coast to coast recently compared new Pepsodent with other toothpastes at home. They preferred new Pepsodent by an overwhelming average of three-to-one over all other brands they tried. These families, three-to-one, said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Yes, families three to one say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Get new Pepsodent toothpaste for your family right away. There was a rough desert wind blowing into Los Angeles that evening. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair, make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends up in a fight, and meek little housewives feel the edge of a carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen when the Santa Ana blows in from the desert. I closed up my office early. I got tired of reading Philip Marlowe, private investigator, backwards on the ground glass of my office door. So I opened the door and closed it from the outside and locked it and went out to get a beer before I went up to my apartment. Uh, fill her up again, Mr. Marlin? Marlowe. Marlowe. Marlin is a fish. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey. Hey, you bartender. Come in on the ride. That drunk again. What'd you expect in this business? Autograph hounds? Make it snappy, yeah. Be right with you, sport. I gotta draw this man a beer. Crying out loud, these stumble bums have come in here. You got another customer, Bacchus? Hey, bud. You seen a lady in here lately? A lady? Tall, good-looking, brown hair, a print bolero jacket, and a blue silk dress. No, sir. No, sir. Nobody like that's been in. All right, straight scotch, fast. I left my engine running out there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This slick-looking, sarcastic guy stepped up to the bar and drank his scotch whole. And he stopped. The drunk was grinning at him. And then, without changing his grin, the drunk swept a gun from somewhere so fast it was just a blur coming out. Made a couple of hard snaps and a little smoke curled. Very little. Two other guys. Don't move. So long, Waldo. All right, don't move, you two. Poor Waldo. But I made his nose bleed. So long, boys. Drink up. All right, get on that phone, kid. I'll get his license number. Holy smoke. Holy smoke. Not too late. Drove away with this dead guy's car. Uh, maybe he ain't dead. He's dead, all right. Where's your phone? This is for the police. The prowl car boys were there in about five minutes. 
Waldo was out of business, all right. And nothing in his pockets told who he was, but he had about $700 on him. I told the cops what I knew, including about Waldo's tall, brown-haired, pretty girl in the bolero jacket. It was about 9 o'clock when I stepped out of the elevator in my apartment house and almost walked right into a tall, brown-haired, pretty girl in a bolero jacket, waiting for the elevator on my floor. Oh, excuse me. Just a minute, lady. I said, excuse me, I'm in a hurry. Now, if you'll be good enough Look, to step out Look, you better out of... not go outside in those clothes. Just what do you mean by telling me this what... This isn't a make. You're in trouble. Trouble? Yeah, the cops are looking for you in those clothes. But I haven't done anything that... I'm in room 41 across the hall now. I never collected an etching in my life. All right, I'll go with you. I'll go. I got to my room and rustled up some scotch and soda and brought the girl her glass. She had a small automatic in her hand. It jumped up at me. And her eyes were full of panic. I put down both glasses on the table slowly so that I wouldn't be misunderstood. Look, sister, maybe this wind has got you crazy, too. Don't move. Be careful, don't move. A man just got shot in a bar down the street. Before he got it, he'd been asking about a tall, pretty girl with a bolero jacket, like yours. What did he look like, this man? Tall, 5'11", slim, dark, dark brown eyes with a lot of glitter... Dark suit, white handkerchief in the breast pocket. And he must have seen you earlier tonight to know how you were dressed. Am I getting anywhere? He used to be my chauffeur. You had an appointment with him, didn't you? Why? Listen, he asked for you, didn't he? Yes, I had an appointment with him. He'd stolen something from me when he left three days ago. I was going to buy it back from him. Why didn't you tell the police? I couldn't tell them. It was valuable, wasn't it? Valuable enough for Waldo to steal? $15,000. Oh, it's peanuts. But it wasn't the value... It meant something to me. The man I love gave it to me, and now he's dead. He was a flyer shot down over Germany. I'll go back and tell my husband that. He probably hired you. He did? How much is he paying me? And uh, where is this husband of yours? He's at a meeting. This late at night? He's a very important man. He's a hydroelectric engineer. I'll have you know that my husband oh, is one of the... skip it. I'll take him out to lunch sometime and have him tell me himself. And about Waldo... Whatever he had on you is dead stock now, like Waldo himself. You mean he's dead? Waldo is dead? Yes, sister, he's dead. Dead, dead, dead. Lady, he is dead. Oh! I scream and I'll give you two black eyes. I'm not going to scream. Who will that be? There's a dressing room behind that door. Hide there. Now, don't argue with me, do it. All all right. to the door making a loud yawning sound. The backs of my hands were wet. I opened the door. Without a gun, that was a mistake. I certainly knew the gun I was looking into, a 22 target automatic that had already killed one man that night. And I knew the bald head and the flat, shiny eyes and the face like a poisonous lizard. Baldy put the muzzle of his gun lightly against my throat. I, I backed into the room. And Baldy kicked the door shut. You alone? Look for yourself. I'm asking, not looking. I'm alone. You and that dumb bartender saw me dust off Waldo. What did Waldo do to you? Who's asking? Just making conversation. He stooled on me on a bank job we did together. 
Got me four years in Michigan pen. How is he? Dead. <laughs> I'm still good, drunk or sober. Tell me why I came here, pal. You heard the barkeeper and me talking, and I told him my name, where I lived. That's how, pal. I said, why? Oh, skip it. The hangman won't ask you to guess why he's there. Oh, you're pretty tough at that, ain't you? But you're slamming off, pal. All right, but you could get that gun out of my neck and try somewhere else. Oh, yeah, sure. Is this better? Does this suit you all right? Just so it is in my neck. Say when, pal. It's your party. I leaned against the gun. The door of the dressing room showed a crack of darkness. The crack widened. I began to shake a little. The girl came quietly into the room, but there was white all around her iris. She was scared. She had her gun in her hand, but I was sorry for her. Dead sorry. She'd try to make the door scream either way. It'd be curtains for both of us. You're scared, mister? You worried about any little thing? I couldn't talk. The girl floated in the air somewhere behind Baldy, and her horrified face was drifting toward us. My mouth was as cold and dry as yesterday's toast. Well, kid, how's it feel? You ready yet? Go on, say the word. Well, don't take all night about it if you're if you're going to do something about it. Why not, pal? I like this. I suppose I yell. Go ahead, yell. Go ahead. Put up yeah. your hands! Hey, look! Oh. Thanks, sister. Thanks. That that buys me. Everything I have is yours now and forever. Is he dead? You flatter me no end, lady. I only punched him. All right, now get out of here while I call the cops down on this killer. Yes. yes. Good night. Good hey, night. wait, wait. Leave that Bolero jacket here. It mocks you for the cops. Oh, yes. Here. Okay. See you again? Why? Oh, I don't know. No, I guess not. After all, who am I to be the rival of a dead flyer? I'll see that the police get Jesse James here. Good night, lady. <laughs> Yeah? You mean me? Yes. Please. Oh, you. Again, huh? Get in. I must talk to you. You want to know what happened at headquarters, huh? Yes. Well, I went down there with the law and gave them the story. I left you out of it. Oh, thank you. You saved my life, so no one knows a thing about you. Well, incidentally, neither do I. Well, my name is Mrs. Frank Bosley. 212 Fremont Place, Olympia 24596. Is that what you want? I guess so. Well, there it is. Now, why did you really come back? I wanted my pearls. Pearls? Yes. Pearls, too, huh? All right. Tell me about the pearls. We've had a murder and a beautiful mystery woman and a sadistic killer and a heroic rescue. Now we will have pearls. I was to buy them back from the man called Waldo. Well, I saw everything that came out of his pockets and there weren't any pearls. Could they be hidden in his apartment? Well, it's possible. Waldo lived on the same floor you do in this apartment house. And why didn't I know him, at least by sight? He moved in last week. He managed to get a sublet. Yeah, great, a sort of an amateur magician on the side, huh? It's, it's getting rather late. Yeah. 
What about your husband this hot, mysterious night? He's still at his meeting. You could have brought him along. You could have sat in the back seat working out a problem in hydroelectrics while... While what? Well, I didn't have any answers. They wouldn't sound cheap or just ridiculous or from the sophomore class in repartee. Had an unlit cigarette in my hand. I threw it out of the window. I took a hold of her and kissed her. She sat very still. I was shaking when I let go of her. Her voice trembled a little when she spoke. I meant you to do that. I wasn't always that way. Only since Johnny Dalmas was killed in the war. He gave me those pearls. Forty-one of them perfectly matched with the diamond propeller clasp. I'd have loved them if they'd been wooden beads because he gave them to me. I love Johnny. The way you love just one time. You understand that? Hmm. What's your name? Lola. Lola, how did you explain a $15,000 pearl necklace to your husband? I told him they were imitation, then I bought them myself. How did Waldo latch on to them and what they stood for? When my husband was in Argentina, Waldo and I'd go for long drives. I was restless and wretched because of Johnny. Sometimes Waldo and I had a little drink together, but that's all. But you confided in Waldo about this pearls. I was a fool. And when your husband came back, Waldo stole the pearls and offered to sell them back to you, or he'd tell Papa, huh? I was a fool. And now you think the pearls are upstairs in Waldo's apartment? I suppose it's a lot to ask. No, sweetheart, huh? I've been paid. I'll go look. Wait here, huh? Was the gun long, Lola? No. Well? No. No pearls? No pearls. Oh. There was a man in Waldo's room. A man? Who? You know a man named Leon Valsanos? Not by name. I don't know. Mexican, South American, about uh, 45, small, iron gray hair, very neat, fawn-colored suit, wine-colored tie. No, I don't think I know such a man. Is he the one in Waldo's room? Yeah. What does he have to say? Very little. In fact, nothing. He's dead. You are listening to The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin, with music composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. Yes, families all over America have named their favorite toothpaste. New Pepsodent with invigorating irium foam. New, fresh-tasting Pepsodent with a new, cool, minty flavor. It's the three-to-one favorite over all other toothpastes. It's true. With families all over America, new Pepsodent is the favorite three-to-one. The Farrell family of Evergreen Park, Illinois, preferred new Pepsodent on every single count. The Farrells say new Pepsodent tastes best of all, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. On all these counts, by an overwhelming average of three to one, families prefer new Pepsodent over all other toothpaste they've tried. It's a fact. 
families three to one say new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, this is not just our opinion. It's the honest conviction of the Farrells and other families who compared new Pepsodent with other toothpaste they had at home. Get new Pepsodent, the only toothpaste containing irium. Get it for your family without delay. We continue with the adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler and starring Van Heflin, who appears by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mare, producers of the Technicolor musical Fiesta, starring Esther Williams. I sat with Lola Barsley in her car listening to that jittery, infuriating desert wind gallop around in the midnight streets. I just told her about the Latin-looking man I'd found in Waldo's room in a very dead condition. I held her hands until they stopped trembling. Then I gave her the few remaining details. He had a gun in a shoulder holster, but someone had strangled him before he could use it. Someone? Waldo? Maybe. You see that convertible coupe two cars ahead of us? It's been there for hours. It was there before I parked here to wait for you. Leon, the man in Waldo's room, came in that car, but according to the key containers he carried, that isn't his car. Whose car is it? Does it matter? Well, it belongs to a lady, according to the tag on the keys. A lady? Well, anyway, a woman, if you're going to split hairs. Eugenie Kolchenko. Hmm? In West Los Angeles? Never heard of her. Uh-huh. All right, well, you go home now, huh? What are you going to do? Drive that flossy convertible around, wave at my friends, impress people. You run along now. Me, I've got another date. Yes? What is it, please? Miss uh, Eugenie Kolchenko? Yes? What is it? Did you lose or misplace a pigeon gray convertible coupe? What are you saying? Now, don't be alarmed. I found it and I brought it home to you. Come in, please. It is a reward you wish. Shall we say... Snap out of it, dragon lady. Who was he? Who was who? The little guy, Leon. You loaned your car to. He's dead. Who was he? Oh, oh no, no. Oh, yes, yes. Eugenie. Darling, darling, come here, please. What's the matter, honey? Who is this man? I came about Miss Kolchenko's car. What about her car? The gentleman who borrowed it couldn't return it on account of he isn't alive. He's dead. Darling, he's dead. Well, that's putting it more bluntly, of course. Dead, then? Eh? Mm, completely. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, private investigator. My card. Mm-hmm. You told the police yet? Never do at once. What can be deferred pending negotiations? Aesop. I might negotiate. Oh, peachy. What do you know, Marlowe? A man named Waldo was shot in a bar tonight. I happened to have the inside as to who he was. And when I visited his apartment tonight, I found this Leo Valsanos dead. He wouldn't have had $500 in 20s on him, would he? No, but this Waldo had over $700 on him when he was killed at that cocktail bar, mostly in 20s. Hmm. Is there a basis there for negotiations yet? Very well, Marlowe. I'm a married man. 
were certain unpaid bills for some stuff Miss Kolchenko here had charged to my account. But you told me I might charge to your account. All right, so I wasn't very bright. That might be the understatement of the decade, but go on. I had the unpaid bill safely in my briefcase. Somehow this Waldo had a chance to steal the briefcase. I hired Leon and gave him $500 to buy back those bills from Waldo. Instead, Waldo took Leon's dough and was forced to kill Leon in the process. And then he went out to keep another date and accidentally walked into an old pal hostile enough to blow him down. And someone still has those bills. And I'm in for a divorce suit. The man who shot Waldo got away in Waldo's car with your briefcase in it. Yeah, that could be. The cops caught him. Oh. And the police have the briefcase. Maybe. But the police are interested in solving crime, not in tossing mud for the benefit of sensation eaters. Look, I've got a friend or two at headquarters. Let me see what I can do. It's worth $500 to me. Well, then that's what it'll cost you. Well, good luck. And, um... Thank you, Mr. Uh... Marlowe. Philip Marlowe, remember? My name is Frank Barsley. Bars... Barsley. Oh. What does that mean? The big hydroelectric engineer? Yeah. How did you know? My voices tell me. Who? Darling, this man is manifestly insane. It's the heat, Miss Kolchenko. It's the Santa Ana. It's the desert wind. May I use your telephone? Someday I must tell you about Ibera. Salt of the Earth, Ibera, Detective Lieutenant Obert, Central Homicide. I phoned Ibera from Miss Kolchenko's house and told him where he could find a well-dressed cadaver named Leon and furnished a few small details. I gave Ibera time to check my tip and then I went down to see the good lieutenant and told him why I'd been up in Waldo's room, only to find Leon instead of a certain lady's string of pearls. Pearls, eh? Well, I thought Waldo might have them up there. Mm. Whose pearls were they? A lady's. Go on. Or they might have been in Waldo's car that Waldo's killer drove away in. Mm, yeah. What, yeah? They might have. Also a batch of unpaid bills charged to the account of a certain Frank Barsley? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, now, the police aren't interested in domestic scandal. They, they want to prevent or to solve crime, right? So? So I've got $500 for the police fund if those pearls and those bills are returned to their rightful owners. <laughs> Quit your kidding. No, no, it's a, it's a valuable necklace. Yeah. There's your necklace. That's it. 41 pearls, perfectly matched diamond propeller clasp. That's it. That's the one. Take it away, Marlow. On the level? Mm-hmm. Just tell me straight what it's all about, all oh, I ask. Sure, sure. Well, this Waldo was blackmailing a wife with the pearls and her husband with the bills, by the name of Barsley. Well, Barsley sent Leon to get the bills from Waldo. Instead, Waldo killed Leon, then stepped out and happened to get shot by that guy at the bar. Now, if Barsley's name stays out of the paper, I get $500, and that goes to the police fund. We'll keep him out. Well, now, I'm not in this case for money. I just want to get back the bills and the pearls. As you say, Marlowe, the police aren't in business to sling mud. Well, you can deliver the pearls to the lady yourself if you like. No, she no, lives no, at... No, 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 Marlowe. Uh, you better take them to her. You see, except for the diamond propeller clasp on them, they're, uh, They're phony. Phony? But... All but the clasp, Marlowe. All but the clasp. <laughs> 
so the flyer, Johnny Dalmas, the great lover, had given Lola a string of fake pearls. Well, I didn't know how to tell her, but I called her up and told her to meet me at the beachcombers at two. I was going to slip her the bad news slowly. I'm glad you asked me to meet you here, Mr. Marlowe. See, I... I had to have someone to talk to. Go ahead. Go ahead, talk. I'm listening. Now, Mr. Marlowe, now more than ever, I must... I must have those pearls. Why? Money trouble? Oh, no, no. It's just that everything's gone wrong. And this morning, my husband told me where to separate. Oh, I'm sorry, Lola. But if I had Johnny's pearls, it would be a link with the past and with Johnny. And all he meant to me. It's how a woman feels, Mr. Marlowe. I wouldn't blame you for not understanding. Well, maybe I do, though. So please, Mr. Marlowe, please. You'll try to find my pearls. Lola, look, I... Even if it isn't all of them. Any part of them. Any... Any single smallest one of them. It'll be Johnny's. Look, will you uh, meet me here again around four o'clock? I'll be here. Okay, I'll see what I can do. There was only one earthly decent thing I could do. I took Lola's glass pearls to a jeweler and I had him take off the diamond clasp and put it on one of those strings of so-called simulated pearls that they sell you for three bucks, tax included. Then I went back to keep my four o'clock date with Lola at the beachcombers. Well, Mr. Marlowe, anything new? Yes, the uh, police found some pearls in Waldo's car. They found my pearls? No, no, not, not exactly. Not exactly? Well, Waldo was getting set to jip you, Lola. He had the diamond clasp of your necklace attached to a string of cheap imitations. And then he sold the real pearls. Oh, how... Oh. These are the imitations here. Yes. But it is my clasp. The clasp is real. Is that all right? Yes, it's the clasp that Johnny Dalmas gave me. Oh, of course, of course it's all right. Oh, that's swell. And thank you so much, Mr. Marlowe. Forget it. I won't. Not ever. Well, is this goodbye? Yeah, I think so. You'll never get over Johnny Dalmas, Lola. If anybody ever bothers you again, though, well, let me know. Name's Philip Marlowe. I drove almost to Malibu and then I parked and walked out on a rock cliff jutting into the Pacific Ocean. Then I reached in my pocket and dug out the string of bohemian glass pearls that Lieutenant Ibarra had found in Waldo's car. I cut the knot at one end and slipped the pearls off one by one. One by one, I flipped them into the water. The gull swooped down on them and then flapped up again, screaming indignantly. The phony pearls had fooled Waldo and Lola Barsley, but they couldn't fool a seagull. I said to myself... To the memory of Johnny Dalmas, just another four-flusher. I listened a while to the wheeling seagulls. All at once, I realized that the wind had died. The Santa Ana had blown itself out. The red wind was done. It was over.
You have just heard Van Heflin starring in the first of a new mystery series, Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Pepsodent. Have you tried, have you tasted the new Pepsodent toothpaste? Its lingering minty flavor is so fresh and inviting, families prefer it by an overwhelming average of three to one over all other toothpastes in a recent nationwide test. They said new Pepsodent tastes better, makes breath cleaner, and makes teeth brighter. Remember, new Pepsodent gives you more invigorating irium foam. It sweeps dulling film away. No wonder it's the three-to-one favorite with families all over America. Get new Pepsodent with irium for your family right away. Tonight's story on the adventure of Philip Marlowe was based on Red Wind, written by Raymond Chandler, creator of Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective. It was adapted for radio by Milton Geiger. Heard with Van Heflin was Lorene Tuttle as Lola Barsley. And this is Wendell Niles inviting you to listen again next week at this same time to another exciting story on The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin with a distinguished cast. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. That was the original NBC broadcast that uh, aired on June 17th, 1947. Coming up next is a comedy called Duffy's Tavern, and uh, this uh, ran on several networks, including CBS and NBC, from 1941 to 1951. Uh, The program often featured celebrity guest stars, but uh, always kind of hooked them around the uh, misadventures of the manager of Duffy's Tavern, Archie, who was played by Ed Gardner. And now Ed Gardner, he uh, wrote and created the show as well and Duffy <laughs> Duffy was never seen or heard during the show and uh, but anyway um, it's uh, it, it, but Duffy's daughter is involved in the in the the whole scheme of thing uh, she's a man crazy daughter and uh, she uh, kind of falls for almost everybody that comes into the tavern now one interesting note about this is that, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> Gardner, he, uh, he moved the show. He, uh, moved it to Puerto Rico back in 1949. Uh, Puerto Rico was income tax free. So that's how popular the show was. Anyway, here is, uh, from January 22nd, 1947. Duffy's Tavern. It's Wednesday night, so we take you now to Duffy's Tavern with our guest tonight, Mr. John J. Anthony and Mrs. Nussbaum of Allen's Alley, and starring Archie himself, Ed Gardner. <laughs> Duffy's Tavern is brought to you by Bristol Myers. Makers of Ipana Toothpaste and Truchet, the beforehand lotion. Two products it will pay you to remember. Ipana for the smile of beauty. Truchet for softer, lovelier hands. Ipana, Truchet. Hello, 
Duffy's tavern where the elite meet to eat, Archie, to mind you speaking. Duffy ain't here. Oh, hello, Duffy. Hey, Duffy, did you hear me on the Fred Allen show Sunday? You did, huh? Why'd you think of me performing? The high heaven, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Duffy, with you, nothing is entertainment unless you can blow the suds off of it. <laughs> By the way, I invited Mrs. Nussbaum to come down. Mrs. Nussbaum, the dame that says, no? <laughs> what does it mean? Uh, it's uh, Esperanto for Vas Moxto. <laughs> yeah. And you know who else is coming? John J. Anthony from the radio. You know, Mr. Anthony, the expert on maritime relations. <laughs> Yeah, he's the guy that tells husbands and wives how their marriage can be a success. Bluebeard had the best method, huh? <laughs> Duffy, you're a little too skeptical. I'll call you back. Hey, Eddie. Uh, what is it, Mr. Uh, did you hear me on the Fred Allen show Sunday? Yes, I did. Yeah, did you think I was funny? Yeah, funny. <laughs> you know, when you told your first joke, I just rolled on the floor. Yeah, the first joke. Uh, well, uh, what about the rest of them? I didn't hear them. By the time I stopped rolling, I found myself sitting in the movie. <laughs> well, you missed something, Eddie. I was really sensational. You was, huh? Yeah. You know, I, I forgot to tell you. Just as you come on the air, a girl from that Hooper rating called up and said they was making a special survey. Is that so? A special mm. survey just for me, huh? Yeah. They wanted to know what program I was switching to. <laughs> Cut it out, Eddie. But what a racket that radio is, huh? Why can't I get a job like that Fred Allen instead of working in a crummy dump like this? Mm. Well, well, why don't you give your problem to Mr. Anthony when he gets you? Him? With them nasal nostrils of his, he'd like to be Fred Allen himself. <laughs> what do I need him for? Believe me... I have given just as much good advice as he has, Eddie. Enumerate? Well, uh, like to me friends Harry and Ethel, or as Mr. Anthony calls them, H and E, you know. <laughs> uh, from the day they got married, they argued and fought like cats and dogs. But thanks to the advice that I gave them, today they're both very happy. Mm. What happened? They're divorced. <laughs> And, uh, then there's the case of, uh, George and Sylvia. Uh, G and C. Uh, <laughs> two people, very much in love. But there was just one thing, you see. Harry says that they couldn't get married unless Ethel stopped running around with this other guy. Who fixed it up for them? Me. How'd you do that? I stopped running around with Ethel. <laughs> However, Eddie, I uh, find that in most of these cases, it's the woman that's at fault. Just a minute, Archie. You can't talk that way about us women. Us women? What do they do, make you an honorary member of the sex? (laughs) (laughs) Women are at fault. Look at poor Vera Fogarty. What happened to her shouldn't happen to a dog. But it did. (laughs) But how did it happen this time? Well, the fella is about to get married to us, see? So the preacher says, if anyone knows why these two should not be married, let him now speak. So what happened? So the fellow's wife has to, has to go and open up a big mouth. <laughs> well, some wives is just narrow-minded that way. <clears throat> but look, Miss Duffy, save Vera's troubles until Mr. Anthony gets here, will you? Oh, she's been on Mr. Anthony's program, but she could hardly talk. Why? Oh, she kept crying and crying. All broken up, huh? 
No, she was just so happy to be on the radio. <laughs> well, anyway, she told Mr. Anthony her problem, and he said, I would like to see you after the program is over, my dear. Well, she's thrilled. What happened then? Nothing. All he did was give her a lot of good advice. Mm. Well, look, Miss Duffy, why don't you stop running around with that dumb Vera? You know, a person is judged by the company he keeps. Uh, Hiya, Judge. Hiya, Finnegan. Uh, I'd like to talk to Mr. Anthony. Wouldn't Ripley be better? Uh... About what? Uh, about my mother and father. Last night, me old man comes home at five this morning. Yeah? And me mother is waiting up for him with a baseball bat. Oh. Any hits? Yeah, yeah. She drove in four stitches. <laughs> and uh, after watching them belting each other around, I think I should never get married. Especially to a dame. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Marriage ain't so bad, Finnegan. It happens in the best of families. Oh, yeah? Well, me father married me mother, and what did they get out of him? <laughs> I think you're just being self-conscious. <laughs> you should try marriage sometime. Uh, uh, I couldn't even remember which finger the ring go, John. Well, it's simple. It's worn on the third finger from the left which, incidentally, in your case, is also the fourth finger from the right. <laughs> but wouldn't you like to have a wife, Finnegan? Uh, well, maybe if I could marry Betty Grable. Yeah, but what about Harry James? I'm afraid not, Archie. He ain't my type. <laughs> Look, marriage is nothing to joke about, Finnegan. You're making fun of a... Very sad subject. <clears throat> Don't forget, marriage goes back a long way, back to the dark ages, which should be a hop, skip, and a jump for you. Uh, them was the days when if a caveman wanted a wife, he just went out and hit some dame over the head with his club. This was the first form of woman suffrage. Yeah, well, I'll accept that. Good. <laughs> you know... The marriage was better in them days, Arch. You didn't have to buy a dame a lot of clothes. Oh, them guys had their problems too, Finnegan. Oh. Even them cave maidens used to say, Darling, I simply haven't a thing to wear. You'll have to go out and buy me a new leaf. <laughs> <laughs> so the husband would have to say, Another new leaf? Woman, do you think them leaves grow on trees? <laughs> yes, Finnegan, it was ever twice. <laughs> What? You made me see marriage in a new light. I think I'll toss your coin. There it is. <clears throat> Heads. Well, looks like I stick to bubble gum. What was tails? Touchy rolls. Finnegan, maybe on second thought you shouldn't get married. Yeah, why not? It'd be tempting heredity. <clears throat> Friends, listen. Here is something you should know. Here are some facts that may help you. Dentists prefer Ipana toothpaste to two to one 
over any other dentifrice for their own personal use. Yes, friends, those are the facts found in a recent national survey. So why don't you two discover just what makes Ipana toothpaste so good for your teeth? See how Ipana can help your teeth, help your smile to a brightness and loveliness you never thought possible. You see, Ipana is designed not only to clean your teeth, but with gentle massage to aid in the health of your gums. And firm, healthy gums are so important to sound brighter teeth, to that more sparkling smile. Ask your dentist. For that national survey showed that 7 out of 10 dentists recommend gum massage. So try Ipana and see the difference Ipana can make to your teeth. Ipana for your smile of beauty. Uh, what other massage? Uh, Mr. Anthony didn't get here yet, huh? No, sir. I wonder what's keeping him. I don't know. But maybe he's having a fight with his wife. <laughs> don't be silly, Eddie. A guy like Mr. Anthony don't fight with his wife. Want a bet? Well, Mr. Anthony. <laughs> well, sir, I'm uh, sure glad you could drop down. Thank you, Archie. Well, so this is Duffy's Tavern. Yep. What do you think of the joint? Mm, well, how shall I say it? Uh, well, how would you say it if you was on the air? On the air, they wouldn't let me say it. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's pretty good. And from listening to you, I thought you was one of them stuffed shirt professor types. Really? Yeah, but you look like any of the other characters that come in here. <laughs> well, Archie... I thought you were going to be a tall, skinny jerk with big ears. Really? Yes. Well, now that we've crossed the ice... Uh, tell me, have you solved any good problems lately? No, not lately, Charlie. Uh, how come? Well... Call me Arch, why don't you? Let's be friendly. <laughs> well, people don't seem to have too many problems these days. They're busy working, making money, having a good time, and... Well, cheer up. Maybe things will get tougher. Uh, you know what the bluebird said about Maeterlinck? <laughs> okay, Archie. Huh? Oh, what is it, Miss Duffy? How about introducing me to Mr. Anthony? Well, okay, but it's a miserable way to treat a guest. Uh, John, this is Miss Duffy. She lives alone and looks it. Uh, <laughs> Miss Duffy, this is Mr. Anthony. How do you do? Likewise, I'm sure. Uh, say, I got a problem. And I suppose your problem is men? Is there any other kind? Look, will you please state your problem and blow? Well, look, Mr. Anthony, I've been going with a fella named Breckenbridge Hartenfelder. Well, that is a problem. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I, I say I've been going steady with him for two years. Yes? After two years, he went out the other day and married another girl. Well, what's the problem? Do you think he was just trying to make me jealous? <laughs> Miss Duffy, my advice to you is to forget about this man. But he's so good-looking. Doesn't matter. But he's very rich. That's unimportant. I said he's very rich. And I said that's unimportant. Hmm. Some advice. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Uh, What is it, Eddie? That lady over there, she says she'd like to talk to you. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Anthony. I wonder who it could be. No. Well, Mrs. Nussbaum. You was expecting maybe the King Cohen trio. <laughs> Say, is this a tough 
place. What do you mean? As I'm walking past the free lunch counter, it's making a fist to pig's knuckles. <laughs> yeah, I guess the rigor mortis must have set in again. <laughs> Uh, what can I do for you, Mrs. Nussbaum? I'm looking for my husband, Pierre. He is leaving my bed and board. Oh, he walked out on you, huh? Like he was Ambassador Mazeltov. <laughs> well, that's strange. I, uh, I thought you and Pierre was very happy. In the first connubial days, yes. <laughs> then Pierre is making himself a Don Juan. A regular Casablanca. <laughs> oh, Archie, from my slipper he is drinking seltzer water. <laughs> Every day he is sending me one dozen Mrs. Miniver Roses. And you? I am working on Pierre the Wild. <laughs> Handkerchiefs I am dropping. Eyelashes I'm fluttering. <laughs> and from the atomizer I'm squirting on myself, Prince Matchabago. Well, tell me, when did you first notice the change in Pierre? It was like this. One night we're going to the movies. It is crowded, so Pierre and me, we are taking separate seats. Pierre is in one row, I am in the next. All through the picture, Pierre is turning around to the seats in back for necking and kissing. Well, that sounds sweet. What's wrong with that? I am sitting in front from Pierre. <laughs> oh, well, I don't blame you then. So you're, you're through with Pierre and men, huh? Pierre, yes. Men, I'm giving another chance. <laughs> but this time should be romance. A knight in shining armor. Pierre wasn't the type, huh? But Pierre is shining only the pants. <laughs> now I'm looking for my dream man. A Sir Lancelot. <laughs> a Prince Charming who will carry me away to his castle. Uh, it's him, my Prince Charming. Introduction, please. It should be proper. Oh, by all means, Clifton Finnegan, shake hands with Pansy Nussbaum. Uh, charmed, I'm sure. Such manners, such a doll. A gentleman from the world. Uh, tell me, uh, haven't we met someplace before? Atlantic City. Atlantic City? No. Look, Finnegan, let me tell you something about this. Uh, later, right, later. Finnegan, she wants to marry. Well, okay. What? <laughs> you mean... Exactly. The dame is out to groom you. <coughs> Mr. Finnegan. Please, uh, Words I am not bothering to me. Uh, now, please. Come to me, darling. Now, take it easy. Hey, Arch, help me. Don't just stand there. Say something. Well, what do you want me to say? Uh, Sounds logical. 
Now, look, Mrs. Nussbaum, you can't marry Finnegan. He, uh, he has already been spoken for. Aha. Uh-huh. And who is my rival? The Smithsonian Institute. <laughs> Archie, by me, this is no competition. I am still making Finnegan Pierre Nussbaum the second. <laughs> wait a minute, Archie. You've got to get me out of this. Okay, Finnegan, I'll take up the problem with Mr. Anthony. Oh. Mr. Seymour. Yes? Oh, yes, ma'am. What can I do for you? Well, I have a problem. Oh, then you want Mr. Anthony. No, I want you. You're the expert on hand care, aren't you? Well, uh... Well, I heard you mention something about truchet at the beginning of this program, and I need something to stop my hands from becoming so rough and dry. Then I'm your man, and truchet is the hand lotion to use. Look... I'll bet one reason your hands won't stay soft and lovely is because you have to do dishes and light laundry and all those little soap and water jobs, right? Right. Okay, so what you need is a hand lotion that will guard your hands. Guard them even while they're in hot, soapy water. You mean Truchet will guard my hands even while they're in dishwater? It sure will. You see, Truchet is the beforehand lotion. You put it on before you get to work, before you do your dishes. So Truchet can guard your hands from the rough drying effects of hot, soapy water. Well, that makes a lot of sense. But how about after I get finished with my work, or when my hands get chapped from cold weather? Can I use Truchet then? Of course you can. You can use creamy, fragrant Truchet as you use any hand lotion. But with Truchet, you get a plus. Something none of those ordinary hand lotions give you. Beforehand protection when you need it most. So, friends... Why don't you all try this new way of helping to keep your hands soft and lovely? Why don't you begin today to use Truchet? T-R-U-S-H-A-Y. Now look, Mr. Anthony, Finnegan is trying to get away from Mrs. Nussbaum, so please advise it to go back to her husband, will you? Okay, Archie, you can count on me. Good, but uh, first we'll have to have a couple of test cases to warm you up. Uh, All right, what's the first case? Uh, the case of the lovesick waiter. Take it, Eddie. Now, will you state your problem, young man? Well, I'm, I'm in love with a gal named Sonia Jones. Yes? But a gal named Sonia Jones ain't in love with me. Well, I wouldn't worry about that, young man. The main thing in life is love. What am I? What a mind. How does a guy think of them answers? <laughs> Why, you're terrific, Mr. Anthony. Thank you, Archie. Eddie, have you talked with this young lady recently? No. Why don't you call her on the phone and talk to her, and then let me be the judge as to whether or not she loves you? Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. Hello. Is this my little honey Oh, excuse me, bud. <laughs> Nah, I want to talk to Sonia. Yeah. Uh, hello, Sonia. Yeah, this is Dreamboat. No, not Charlie. No, not Frankie. No, not Sam. No, not Joe. It's Eddie. No. No. Eddie Green. Huh? 
Now, little Eddie Green. Ah, <laughs> yeah. how you feel, son? You got a cold, huh? What you taking for? Hot lemonade? Yeah, I can hear the ice tinkling in the glass. <laughs> hey, Sonia, who, who was that answered the phone before? Your mother? <laughs> yeah, she got, got, got a kind of a deep voice for your mother, ain't she? Oh, she got a cold, too. Huh? <laughs> you want to take care of yourself, honey. I'll be seeing you. Oh, Sonia, uh, don't drink too many of them hot lemonades. You know how them bonded lemons affect you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Well, you do have a problem, young man. When I've seen cases like this before, they always seem to work out somehow. I'm sure one of these days you'll find yourself married to the Sonia. Well, I would like to marry Sonia, but I sure hate to have that guy for a mother-in-law. <laughs> and that takes care of the case of the lovesick waiter. What is the next case, Archie? Uh, the next case is Miss Duffy. Uh, a problem within a problem. <laughs> What's your trouble this time, Miss Duffy? Well, it's like this. Every time I meet a man with brains, he doesn't have enough money to get married. And when I meet one with money, he's got too much brains to get married. <laughs> what should I do, Mr. Anthony? Now, my child, the answer to your problem is simple. Have courage. Have patience. The right one is going to come along. Surely somewhere in this world there must be a man with no money and no brains. <laughs> now, the next case, the case of Mrs. Pierre N. Mrs. N., your problem, please. Well, Mr. A., for seven years... <laughs> for seven years, like through a looking glass, I'm waiting for my husband, Pierre. Every spring, I'm hoping he's coming back to me like a swallow from Capistrami. <laughs> Precisely. Why did your husband leave you? Who knows? Why did Anthony leave Cleopatra? Madam, please, here I ask the question. <laughs> okay, so ask me a question. What's your problem? <laughs> Madam, madam, I, I'm merely trying to help you. You're a good man, Mr. Anthony. <laughs> this is my problem. Today I am finding my dream prince, Clifton Finnegan. A find. Well, Mrs. Ann. <laughs> well, Mrs. Ann, love sometimes strikes in the most unusual places. I think I'd like to speak to this Mr. Finnegan. I have the hideous corpus right here, Mr. Anthony. Where? There he is, right here. Oh, you better handle this one, Archie. Well, okay. Uh, Mr. Finnegan, are you ready? Uh, yes. Uh, now, what's your name? Clifton Finnegan. Where do you live? Side Eden. When was you born? 1907. Do you drink? Never touch this stuff. Who's your favorite movie star? Bugs Bunny. When was you born? Clifton Finnegan. How old are you? Side Avenue. <laughs> What's your mother's name? 1907. <laughs> Do you drink? Bugs Bunny. Are you married? Never touch this stuff.
Mr. Anthony, I think you better take over. I, uh... <clears throat> I don't think he understands the questions. He's, uh, slightly confused. Mm. Mr. Finnegan, are you confused? Uh, of course not. Do you understand the questions? Naturally. All right, then tell me. What is your name? Bugs Bunny. <laughs> well, Mr. Anthony, I believe that gives you a clear-cut picture of the case. <clears throat> Have you reached a decision? I have. Uh, Mrs. N. Yes, Mr. A. My advice to you is to go back to your husband. Back to my husband. This is the best solution available. <laughs> my... <laughs> my dear friend, under the circumstances, it's the only thing for you to do. Find Pierre, and I know that you will again find true happiness. Piles of wisdom. <laughs> I am seeing the light. Oh, Pierre will be so happy. Excuse me a second. Hello? Who? Yes, she's here. Mrs. Nussbaum, it's Pierre. My Pierre. Oh, I am too overcome to talk. You tell him the good news, Archie. Okay. Hello, Pierre. Your wife, Pansy, is here and wants you back. Yep. And you can thank Mr. Anthony for bringing you two together again. Huh? Mr. Anthony should drop dead. suffering from a cold, listen. For here's a way to get real relief, fast relief from your cold discomforts. Just get Minute Rub, a really modern chest rub. And then rub Minute Rub on the throat, chest, and back. In a minute, Minute Rub soothing menthol vapors begin to clear that stuffed up feeling in your nose and throat. In a minute, Minute Rub starts to bring a feeling of warmth and relief to those tight, sore, aching muscles. And listen, here at last is a chest rub that's greaseless and stainless disappears like vanishing cream and can stain clothes or bed linens. So get a tube of Minute Rub and get relief from that annoying cold misery the modern way. The greaseless, stainless Minute Rub way. Tavern, where do you leave me, Deed? Oh, hello, Duffy. Yes. Uh, well, that's right, Duffy. Next week, Edward G. Robinson. Hmm. As uh, Mrs. Nussbaum says, little scissor. You know? <laughs> okay, Duffy. We'll see you next week and so long. Good night, everybody.
It's time now to leave Duffy's Tavern for this evening, but let's meet here again at this same time next Wednesday when our guest will be Edward G. Robinson. Until next Wednesday, then, this is Dan Seymour reminding you that for a more sparkling smile, remember I pan a toothpaste, and for softer, lovelier hands, remember Truche, the beforehand lotion. Bristol Myers bring you the Alan Young Show on Friday night, and Mr. District Attorney, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. From January 22nd, 1947, Duffy's Tavern. Now, coming up next, um, a little drama. This is suspense, and uh, one of the uh, the premier programs, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Golden Age of Radio. It ran for 20 years, from 1942 to 19. 19- 62. Uh, it went through several major phases, uh, characterized by uh, different hosts and sponsors and producers, but it was usually a formula plot that was involved in it. Uh, typically, the protagonist was usually a normal person who was uh, dropped into a, a threatening or bizarre situation, and uh, but the solutions of it, it was like a cliffhanger at the end. It was withheld to the last possible Second, and of course, the evildoers, <laughs> usually, I said usually a lot, didn't I? Usually punished in the end. This one is the uh, the original broadcast, the first one from June 17th, 1942. Here's suspense. The Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Stories from the world's great literature of pure excitement. A new series frankly dedicated to your horrification and entertainment. Week by week, from the pick of new material, from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you... Suspense. Tonight's presentation is one of the finest of the contemporary stories of mystery and terror. John Dixon Carr's famous novel, The Burning Court. of sherry by the fireside of a beautiful suburban home. What could be more comforting? You're an admirable host, Mr. Depart, and it's really a shame our first meeting is under such a cloud. It's also a shame I have so little time to tell you which one of your guests here ah, murdered your uncle last week. Now, let's see now. I believe we're all here. Your wife, your friend, Mr. Stevens, Captain Brennan. Yes, and incidentally, yourself. Just who did you say you were? Well, no wonder you've had so much difficulty with the case, Captain. My name is Cross, Gordon Cross, the writer. 
As a matter of fact, it's because of my just completed book, Poisoning Throughout the Ages, that I happen to be here now. And Ted Stevens there happens to be a member of the firm which publishes my work. I'd never seen him until tonight, but I've been told what happened. This afternoon, he began reading my manuscript for the first time, on the train. The commuter's train, which every afternoon deposits him safely and soundly here in Crispin. I imagine he was halfway home by the time he finished the first chapter. Then he turned a page. Attached to the following leaf was a picture. And looking at it, the young man stiffened suddenly and all but cried out his shock. It was a picture of a young woman. And under it had been printed famous poisoner Marie Dobre, 1676. Ted Stevens was looking at a picture of his own wife. Imagine, imagine his 25-year-old wife in 17th century costume. The face, the features, even a wistfulness of expression were identical. Even the name, Dobre was his wife's maiden name. But no, 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 that was ridiculous. This woman in the picture was, well, one of his wife's ancestors. Yes, that was it, that was it. Simply an amazing family resemblance. Marie would be waiting for him at the station and he'd have to tell her about it. He wondered why, however, she'd never told him about Oh, well, but you don't discuss such an ancestor, do you? Ted Stevens glanced down at the chapter to which the picture had been attached. It was entitled, The Affair of the Non-Dead Woman. Hello, Ted. Stevens was almost jolted from his seat. It was Dr. Weldon, professor of English at the college, an old friend of his. Quickly, he thrust the picture beneath the manuscript and moved over. Hi, I didn't see you, Doc. Oh, here, have a, have a seat. Oh, I thought maybe you were giving me the, uh, what do they call it? The brush off? Oh, no, I... Uh, say, as a matter of fact, Doc, you're the one man I do want to see. Yeah? Very flattering. Remember those discussions we used to have about murders? <laughs> Better than bridge any time. Well, I got the idea that you'd made sort of a hobby out of the old cases, the historical ones. Well, I've studied quite a number of them, yes. Ever hear of a woman named Marie Dobre? Marie Dobre? Marie Dobre. Oh, yes. Uh, that was her maiden name, of course. One of the finest specialists in arsenic poisoning you could ever hope to find. Oh, we're almost at our station, Ted. Let's get to the door. Yes, a real charmer Marie was. Must have disposed of half a hundred husbands, lovers, suitors, and just plain friends before she was caught. Uh, what happened to her, Doc? She was beheaded and burned. Crispin! Absurd, laughable. Ted Stevens kept saying this to himself, and yet what he knew was a foolish dread followed him straight through the small suburban station and clung to him as he reached the street. And there in the roadster was Marie, leaning toward him a little to hold the door open and smiling at him. Oh, Ted, what on earth are you staring at? That street light shining on your hair, I like that. Oh, you're tight. 
Come on, get in the car. Then, like a wisp of smoke, it was gone. The whole ridiculous fear, the delusion. home, Marie brought the cocktails into the living room. The logs were burning brightly in the fireplace, throwing a soft, dancing glow upon a room that was darkening with dusk. To you, Marie. And to you, dear. As Stevens placed his glass down, he noticed the manuscript of my book. It was there on the table, right where he placed it when he first came in. Deliberately, he turned from it, and then turned back. The manuscript had been moved. Only an inch or so, but it had been moved. Keeping his back to his wife, he thrummed through that early chapter and discovered, just as he knew he would, that the photograph was gone. For a long moment, he thought of what to do. Then slowly, he turned around. This book by Cross I brought home. Yes? Uh, there was a story of Poisoner in it. Rather funny. Her name happens to be the same as yours. Oh, your maiden name, that is. Oh, that is odd, isn't it? <laughs> Darling, was she a relative of yours? Why, Ted, you're serious. In a way, yes. Oh, I don't mean it's really important. It's just that well, when you run across a person who's a dead ringer for your own wife and who lived 300 years ago and was a top-flight poisoner... Well, you like to hear about it, that's all. What on earth are you talking about? Darling, be honest with me. Didn't you look at this manuscript when I was out of the room? No. You didn't take out a picture of a poisoner named Marie Debray? I most certainly did not. Oh, Ted, what is this all about? What are you getting at? Oh, just this. Somebody took that picture out of that manuscript since I've been home. Now, who's that? Well, I'll take a look. Wait, I don't feel like... Why, it's Mark Depard. Mark? Ted, wait a second. Yes? Ted, whatever it is he wants, promise you won't do it. Promise I won't do I it? I mean, promise you won't get yourself involved. Please, Ted, don't go out tonight. Say, what in the world is... Well, anyway, we can't let him stay outside. Mark, how are you? Come on in. Thanks, Ted. Just thinking about giving you a call later. Oh, let me have your hat. Oh, thanks. I, Marie, I, I hope you'll excuse me for popping in like this, but, well, I wanted to talk to Ted. It, it's rather important. Well, I don't mind at all. Come on, Mark. We'll step into the library. Oh, you mind, dear? Of course not, Ted. I'll be making the sandwiches for her. Oh, grab that chair in the corner, Mark. Well, let's hear it. What's the trouble? Ted, my Uncle Miles was murdered. Murdered? Oh, the talk hasn't reached you yet, but it's already started. Nothing definite, of course, just that there was... Something wrong about Uncle Miles' death. But I don't... Mark, are you sure of this? You know he was murdered? I don't know. Of course I don't. I just don't see how it could be any other way. Uncle Miles, you know, had been sick for quite a while. But last Saturday, he seemed so much better that Miss Corbett, uh, that was his nurse, decided to take the day off. And, oh, well, you know all this. You and Marie were over that afternoon. Anyway, Lucy and I went to the club that night, to that masquerade party, and we left the old boy completely alone. I've cursed myself a thousand times since. But what about your housekeeper, Mrs., uh, what's her name? Henderson. Wasn't she around? Oh, sure. In that little house out in back. 
We told her to look in now and then, but, well, that wasn't good enough. It was after midnight when Lucy and I got back. Uncle Miles was dying. Ted, it looked exactly like one of his regular attacks. But then later, after he was gone, I happened to glance under the chest of drawers in his room. There was a small silver cup under there, almost drained, and Uncle Miles' cat. The cat was still warm, but quite dead. Oh. I managed to get the cat out of the house and buried without anyone seeing me. Next day, I had the contents of the cup analyzed. It was poison? Yes. Arsenic. Well, what do you want me to do? Help me open the crypt. What? I want to have a private autopsy performed. Help me get Uncle Miles' body out of that vault. Oh, I know it's a tough job. The thing is sealed solid, but we can do it. You mean without the police knowing about it? Without anybody knowing about it. Mrs. Henderson's visiting her sister, and I managed to send Lucy over to the club. You must be crazy. You're playing with dynamite, Mark. This is something you've got to tell the police now. I can't take that chance. But they'll have to know sometime. You're only I've got to know first, I tell you. You don't understand, Ted. There was somebody in Uncle Miles' room that night, handing him something in a silver cup. Mrs. Henderson was on the porch by the window. She saw her. She saw her? Ted. She thinks it was my wife. Oh, Lucy. It doesn't mean anything to Mrs. Henderson yet, because she doesn't suspect anything. But, well, Ted, you've got to see why I've got to be sure, why I've got to know how Uncle Miles died. Because it wasn't Lucy, Ted. I know it wasn't. Of course not, Mark. She had an alibi. Well, she was with you at the club, wasn't she? Yes. Except for half an hour. I see. You'll help me, won't you, Ted? When do we start? As soon as you can make it. Okay. Come on now, I'll get your hat. You trot on ahead and I'll come over as soon as I can see Marie. But you're not going to tell her about this? Of course not. I'll think of something. Don't you worry about no, it. No, thanks, Ted. Thanks a lot. Uh, Marie? I'm coming. Uh, darling, uh, Mark asked me to... Uh... I know, Ted. Here, you better take these sandwiches with you. You'll be hungry. Oh, but you knew I was going out? Yes, I knew. You listened to us? I couldn't help it, Ted. I had an idea what Mark's visit was about. The talk about his uncle's death. There's a lot of gossip about it in the village. That's why I tried to tell you why I didn't want you to get mixed up in it. But it's too late now, isn't it? I mean, you're going. I can tell by the way you look. Ted, wait a second. There's just one thing I want to tell you before you leave. And that is that no matter what happens, no matter what you find or think or believe, I love you. You'll remember that, won't you? I'll remember you said so, Marie. By the light of a dim kerosene lantern, Mark and Ted Stevens pounded their way through the thick shelf of rock that covered the Depar's ancestral tomb. Pried open the great slab of stone which lay across the subterranean door and then at last descended to the dank, ink-black chamber. They found the coffin. They dragged it from its crypt and placed it on the cold stone floor. They unclamped the lid and opened it. Mark! It's empty. What? That's impossible. It can't be. But it is, Mark. You know what this means? That body wasn't in this coffin when it was placed here. I'll swear it was, Ted. 
From the time that coffin was closed on Uncle Miles, somebody, the undertaker or Lucy or me, somebody was with it until it was buried. And the crypt was sealed right after. Then somebody beat us to it. Somebody's broken in here ahead of us. Broken in? Listen, Ted. Lucy and I have hardly left the house since the funeral. Do you think anybody could break in here? Smash through that stone and cement without our seeing them or without our hearing them? Well, well... What? Well, you might as well come on out then. But who was that? Me, Mr. Depard, up here. My name's Captain Brennan. I'm from the office of the Commissioner of Police. From the... I'd like to talk to you if you don't mind, Mr. Depard. Here, uh, follow my flashlight up. But I don't understand. How did you... How did you know about this? By listening, mainly. You mind if we go up to your house, Mr. Depard? Why, no. <laughs> Not at all. Oh, thank you. Oh, Freddy. Uh, look here, Captain, I... Uh, Freddy, this is Mr. Depar, Lieutenant Gray. Glad to know you, Mr. Depar. And Mr. Uh, Ted Stevens, isn't it? Well, how did you... How did you know my name? Very simple. I got the names of everybody who was here at the Depar's the day the old man died. You and your wife were included. Oh, here we are. But I don't... Uh, uh, Captain, who gave you those names? Why, your housekeeper, of course. Mrs. Henderson? You didn't think Mrs. Henderson saw the dead cat, did you, Mr. Depar? But she did. She also saw you bury it. And uh, we've been interested in the case ever since. Well, nice place you have here, Mr. Depard. Now, let's see. According to Mrs. Henderson, your wife was wearing some kind of a masquerade costume that night. What kind of a thing was it? Well, it was... A... Oh, there, you can see it. It was copied from the dress in that old painting over there. Oh, yes. Hmm. Funny, uh, where's the woman's face? It's always been that way, long as I can remember. Somebody must have thrown acid on it or something. <laughs> Can't blame them much. She was a poisoner. A poisoner? Yes. The story goes that one of my ancestors was responsible for her execution. Marie Dobray, her name was. Oh, yes, I've read about her. Learned all the poison tricks from one of her lovers, guy by the name of Gordon Sacroix. Gordon Sacroix. Oh, yes, Mr. Stevens, we cops read now and then. Did, did you say... That's French. We call it cross. <laughs> Absolutely no limit to a cop's education, is there? <laughs> but to uh, get back to your wife, Mr. Depard, she was dressed like the famous Marie. Now, when Mrs. Henderson looked through that window... Just a minute, Captain. Mrs. Henderson can't prove she saw a thing, and you know it. What do you mean? I mean you haven't any right to insinuate that my wife was in that room. Well, who's insinuating? I I'm trying to say that Mrs. Henderson... After thinking it over, realized that she was tricked by the costume. The woman she saw in the funny clothes, handing the cup of poison to your uncle, wasn't your wife at all. What? Because your wife is an unusually tall young woman. And the one Mrs. Henderson saw was fully half a head shorter. More on the order, let's say, of uh, Mr. Stevens' wife. My wife? Captain, this is absolutely ridiculous. Well, I don't know. All right, what's the matter, Mr. Stevens? You're trembling like a leaf. Uh, tell me now, uh, just for fun, where was Mrs. Stevens that night? She was home, with me. The whole evening? Certainly. She retired early? Yes, we both did. You, I suppose, were sound asleep by midnight. Yes, I was. Then how do you know where your wife was? Well, I... Look I... here, Stevens. She had to have a costume that would match Mrs. Depard's. How did she manage that? Where did she get it? Well, she, she never had one. She never had a dress like that. And what about her motive? Why did she poison him? I don't know. Uh, for money, certainly. Then what was it? Hate? 
Did she hate my stepmother? Oh, yes, yes, she did. No! Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, I tell you. Brown? Yes, Freddy? I phoned and got hold of Mrs. Depart, the nurse, all right. That Mrs. Stevens I couldn't reach her. Her phone won't answer. Okay, have her picked up. I'm going home. Stevens, come back here. I'm going to get my wife. Oh, man, stop it, brother. I? Uh, my name is Cross. Go down, Cross. Cross? Where's my wife? What have you done to her? <laughs> you fiend, what have you done to my wife? You are nothing at all, young man. Here, 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 sit down. You're lying. Something's happened to her. The police just phoned. There wasn't an answer. <laughs> Why are you here? Why am I here? Well, because your wife, reading my chapter on the Dubrays, realized I knew more about the family than even she did. Because she found my phone number on the front cover of the manuscript. And because I know an exceptional case when I hear one. Does that answer your question? No, and you know it doesn't. Can't you see I've got to... I've got to know whether... Yeah, I see. Whether your wife is that Marie Dobre, who was burnt. Burnt by order of the High Tribunal for all poison cases. The burning court of France. Witchcraft. Black magic. The world across the threshold. You're quite sure, no doubt, also, that I'm Godin Saint Croix, who first wooed her. No, no, my boy. <laughs> no, my real name happens to be, of all things, Tom Simpson. Most unsuitable for a distinguished writing career. And Marie Dobre is no more your wife's real name than mine is, Gordon Cross. What? Your esteemed wife was an adopted child, Mr. Stevens. Adopted by people in Canada named Dobre. Remote members of the real family of poisoners. I can't believe it. Why... Why didn't she tell me? You, why? Because until I told her half an hour ago, she didn't know it herself. You see, in the course of my research on the family, I found out about it. And in the course of talking with your wife, I found out something else. How for years she was haunted by the fear that she might be a poisoner by inheritance, by blood. And you can see, can't you, why she never talked about it? Her yes. past to you? Yes, yes. And yet, Mr. Stevens, you had all but made her forget that past. You. And that's why she was willing to lie, to steal a picture, do anything, in order to hold you to her. Yes, yes, I, I see that now. You know, young man, I, I rather think she loves you. But as you will see, though, I, she comes only when I call her. Uh, Mrs. Stevens? You mean she's... Yes, Mr. Cross. Marie, it's you. You're all right? Oh, yes, dear. We're both all right now, and nothing can change it ever. Marie, listen. Don't say Marie, dear. Say Maggie. Maggie? Oh, that's my name, my real name. Maggie McTavish. And it's a lovely name, dear. The most beautiful, gorgeous... Darling, ever. darling, please. You don't understand. The police, they think you had something to do with Miles' death. They think I did. So, now, Mr. Stevens, before we go back to the Depars, don't you think you'd better tell me everything that's been said and done up to date? Having just saved your wife's soul from the burning court, now I'll rest her body from the electric chair. <sighs> yes, Mr. Depart, truly excellent sherry. Don't you think so, Miss Corbett? Yes. Yes, it's very nice. Well, 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is how I happen to be here. So let us consider first that supernatural hocus-pocus in the crypt, that body that walked out of the sealed tomb, that body that never was in the tomb. Never was in the tomb? No, Mr. Depa. The murderer knew that very soon Mrs. Henderson's story would bring about an investigation. He had to get rid of the well-known corpus delicti. Yes, but who could have kept the body out of the tomb? Who, Mr. Depa? Why, you, sir. What? I I don't understand. Well, it's very simple. You had the opportunity. I believe you said yourself you were alone with the body before the burial. And you had the strength. I dare say you carried it down to the furnace. Where it's now probably nothing but ashes. Ridiculous. Why would he spend an hour smashing into a crypt for a body he knew wasn't there? Why, Captain? Hmm. To impress Mr. Stevens, his witness. And also, apparently, you. Oh, that's perfectly fantastic. Fantastic? Oh, no, Lucy. Just comic. And I suppose, Mr. Cross, that I also put on a woman's masquerade costume, went into my uncle's room and handed him a nice cup of arsenic. No, no, no. That had to be done by a woman. Your accomplice, as matter of fact... Oh, now, come, come, come. You mustn't all look at Mrs. Depar, because Mark Depar's one noble act was his frantic effort to prevent his wife from being charged with the crime. A crime which he and nurse Myra Corbett committed. Myra Corbett? Why, you... Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Stevens. This quiet little lady beside me. Why would I do such a thing? Money, Miss Corbett. A cutout of Mark Depa's inheritance. Payments for services rendered. That's an absolute lie, Cross. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Captain Brennan never bothered to check Miss Corbett's whereabouts on the night of the murder. Why even think of the nurse? She was the custodian of the old man's health. Oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. And yet who but a nurse could so naturally offer the old man a cup? A cup he was sure contained medicine. You're making it up. The whole thing. And who but Miss Corbett, living right here in this house, would know what kind of masquerade dress she must copy, would know when Mrs. Henderson would pass the window that night, pass and see her, and accept her, she hoped, for Lucy Depart. No. That's not true. Oh, yes, Miss Corbett. Yes, Miss Corbett, that dress was the touch that wrecked you. That was your own idea, wasn't it? Not Mark's. You weren't content with a mere murderer's share of the profits. You wanted a white share, half of the whole estate. You wanted Lucy Depart convicted and out of the way for good. Hmm. Well, I give you a toast, Miss Corbett, with Mr. Depart's excellent sherry to a particularly ruthless poisoner. And yet, you know, on the whole, I'm rather partial to female poisoners. Why, only tonight I... Mr. Cook! What's the matter, Brennan? This man's dead. I'm from cyanide if I know anything. Cyanide from that glass of sherry. Cyanide that a nurse could get quite easily. That glass was right beside you, Miss Corbett, and nobody else was near it. Too bad he didn't drink it as soon as you hoped. A second ago, we had nobody to use against you. But we have now, Miss Corbett. We have now. And I arrest you for the murder of Gordon Cross. Now close to five months ago that the prominent author was murdered. And tonight, Myra Corbett pays with her life for that crime. The former nurse, at first protesting her innocence... Yes, I'm in here, dear. Oh, oh. I thought you might. What did you cut it off for? 
Huh? What do you mean? The radio. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought you wanted to talk. Poor Ted. Don't you think I know you better than that? What was on the radio? Well, there wasn't any... Okay. It was about Myra Corbett. She goes to the chair tonight. Oh. I didn't think you wanted to be reminded. I don't, really. But making such an effort to hide it only keeps it alive, doesn't it? All right, darling. Know what I came in to ask? If you ordered a cocktail before dinner? The largest one you've got. Fine. I'll get off the ice cube. I know. If I'll fix up the fire. Okay, Maria. A deal. Uh, where are some papers to start it? <laughs> right there by the bookcase. And the name's not Marie. It's Maggie. Because, darling, Marie's dead and gone forever. your hand that touched that glass. I know that now. And I could return the favor. But instead, I shall ask that you dispatch your husband. This one, like all the others. Now, just a little bit of poison in the drink, Marie. Any kind of a drink. What kind, Ted? Hmm? What kind of a cocktail shall we have? Oh, <laughs> any kind, darling. Any kind at all. just heard The Burning Court from John Dixon Carr's famous novel, the first in Columbia's new series of outstanding classics and chills by world-famous authors. Tonight's play, ladies and gentlemen, has one rather special significance we think you'd like to know about. As you perhaps have heard, every fine comedian is said to cherish a secret desire to do an abrupt about-face. He pines for the part of a blackguard. Well, tonight you witness the fulfillment of one such desire. The role of that literary and quite infamous diehard, Gordon Cross, was portrayed by none other than Hollywood's expert provoker of laughs, Charlie Ruggles, here in New York for the world premiere of his latest screen success, Friendly Enemies. The role of Marie, well, that was enacted by a young lady who long ago won national acclaim as one of Broadway's most accomplished dramatic actresses, Miss Julie Hayden. Thank you, Charlie Ruggles and Miss Julie Hayden, for your splendid performances. The play tonight as all plays in this series, was produced and directed by Charles Vander, written by Harold Metford and scored by Bernard Herman. Next week, we bring you an intensely exciting and moving drama, The Life of Nellie James. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. From June 17th, 1942, the first of a very successful run of shows. That was suspense. Now, coming up next is Theater 5. We're going to go forward a couple of decades. Uh, this is from 1965. Uh, Theater 5, it was called Theater 5 because it, it aired every weekday at 5 o'clock. It was ABC's last attempt to revive dramatic radio. Um, it Usually uh, between 20, 25-minute packages and uh, 
they uh, ran a total of 52 weeks of 260 shows between August 3rd, 1964 and July 30th, 1965. This one's from January 28th, 1965. Here's Theater 5, The Hostage. Stop! Stop or I'll Some deal. Lousy shot. The next one won't miss. Schwartz delicatessen. That's as good a place as any. Yes, I could help you. So what's the gun for? For you, if you don't do like I say. You all alone here? Yeah, take the money and go. You need it so bad. Something is wrong, Sammy. What? That's just my wife in the back room. She wouldn't bother. Tell her to come out here. Hey, you, out here now. Who is speaking in such a... Sammy. A gun he's got. There's a cop out there taking shots at me. He don't come in here after me, I don't shoot you. He comes in, I shoot. Okay? Theater 5 presents The Hostage. You, what's your name? I am Mrs. Schwartz. Okay, get over there by the front window. There in the corner where I can watch you. Oh. And then don't move. I'm telling you, don't move. Like you says, Minnie, go in the corner. You shouldn't move. Yeah, all right. I'll, I'll close to the window. Yeah, like that. Now you, Pop. You could call me Sam. Yeah, sure, Pop. You're going to stand in front of me, see? Like this, right in front of me. So if somebody puts a bullet in me, it's got to go through you first, okay? By me, no, not okay, so... Since you ask. Don't get smart, Pop. You don't want answers. You shouldn't ask questions. All right, Pop, open the door. Just a crack so I can yell through. And don't get no stupid ideas. Stupid. Sam Schwartz ain't. Hey, you out there, copper. You hear me? I hear you. You see this guy I got with me? Yeah, I see him. His name is Sam Schwartz. He owns this dump. Now, you take one step, one lousy step toward me, and Sam Schwartz is a dead man. I got a gun right on the back of his head. Tell the guy, Pop. Tell him what? About the gun, stupid. A gun he's got. In the back of my head. One lousy step and I blow his head off. You got that? Now listen to me. Don't shoot that man. Put your hands up and come out here. All we've got on you now is armed robbery. A few years. You pull that trigger and you're a cinch for the chair. You'd be crazy to kill him. Nuts to you, copper. All you gotta do is just keep away from me and save your sermons for Sunday. Stupid cop. Bad manners you got, young man. If I had you for a son, God forbid, you'd hear from me. What's your name, boy? Ernie, if you want to know. Ernie Johnson. Ernie Johnson. So now, what I wonder is, why does Ernie Johnson have to be a hoodlum? I mean, couldn't it be maybe Dr. Johnson? Couldn't it be Mr. Johnson, the big lawyer? Why, with a gun in his hand, should be Ernie Johnson? Yeah, well, just don't you forget, I got a gun in my hand. You're listening to the siren? Yeah, I heard it. What did you do, Ernie? Why is that man chasing you? Armed robbery, he said? Yeah, armed robbery. I knocked off a liquor store. You think it was worth all this? You want to see something? How much? I don't know. I ain't had time to count. I figured can't miss a thousand by much, though. For a thousand dollars, his soul. You shot somebody? No, I just took the dough and split Pretty soon there was this cop on my tail yelling at me to stop or he was going to shoot. I don't know who put him on me. Yeah, here's something else, Pop. He did shoot. 
I ain't pulled a trigger on this thing once, but he took a shot at me. Well, his duty, he's got. Ah, knock it off. I got a lot of thinking to do. Well, while you're thinking, Goiny, think on this. You gotta let Minnie go. Minnie? You mean Mom? Don't call me Mom if you would be so kind. Nobody's going no place. I need. You couldn't keep a lady like Mrs. Schwartz in the store here, pointing at her all the time with a gun. You couldn't do that. Even if he's going to say yes, which you shouldn't put any money on it, you still couldn't make me go. Not without you. So there you are, Pop. Well, your own business, maybe you know best, but to me, you ain't acting very smart about it. I guess you'd handle it better. I wouldn't be surprised. One thing for sure, I'd make the odds the best I could. You and that gun it is now against Minnie and me like one against two. One with a gun, maybe, but one against two. All you got to do is send Minnie out, and it's all of a sudden one against one. Send her out to help the cops, huh? Uh, How's Minnie going to help the policeman outside? They'll give her maybe a gun she should shoot at you? She's going to tell them something they don't already know? How could she help? You don't make no sense, that's all. Well, now, let's talk on this for a minute. If it's making sense or not... Let's say pretty soon now you begin to feel like having uh, a canned beer or something. All right, you talk me into it. So I am moving like this, slow as anything. I shouldn't make you nervous. Over by the refrigerator and... No, Minnie. No, no. No, no, don't move. Nobody. So who's moving? What's that you got in your hand? A bottle of ketchup. What are you going to do with it? Well, now you're watching me again. Nothing. She was going to throw it at me. She was. So? Next time, how could you be sure she wouldn't? Next time somebody gets shot, both of you maybe. Or maybe you get a ketchup bottle over the head and come to on your way to jail. That's because you got two people to watch. Now, if you should send Minnie out by the street, then you got only one. It's a better deal. So we're back on this Minnie, you should go outside again. Please, Minnie. You know you could get shot making with a ketchup bottle like that? So for what else? You're giving away beer to hold uppers? All I wanted was I should tell him it could happen. I didn't want you should show him. Okay. Okay, but. Okay, she can go outside. What do you think? You think I want her sneaking around in here belting people over the head with ketchup bottles? You think I'm nuts or something? In my opinion, Oini, you have just finished making a very wise decision. So now all you got to do is talk me into it. You go, Minnie. Now you listen to me, Sammy Schwartz. If you Don't think listen to go- me, no listeners, Minnie. You go. You go, okay? I made up my mind. Whose side you going to be on, Sammy? His or mine? You'll go. Come over here, Pop. Slow and easy. In front of me like before. Now, you over in the corner, Mommy. You'll make a move before I tell you when your boyfriend gets it right in the head. You got that? Okay, Pop, open the door like before. You shouldn't do this to me, Sammy. Hey, Copper! This is a better Donovan, Johnson. Are you ready to give yourself up? How'd they get my name? No, I ain't. I got something I want to tell you. You better play it smart. Give yourself up, Johnson. Time flew. All I want from you is listen to what I got to say. I'm turning the old lady loose. You got that? I'm sending her out now, so don't start popping at her like a bunch of stupid cops. Okay, Mom, outside. Slow, like Pop said. So you don't make me nervous. I do not wish to go outside. You wish a bullet, and Pop said? Okay. So I'll go. Back up a little, Pop. That's nice. Now out the door, Mama. Take it easy. Your mama, I'm not. Shut the door, Pop. So, 
Now it's just you and me, Arnie. Look, I gotta make a phone call. Where is it? And back the counter on the wall by the cash register. Now you stand right where you are. You ain't gonna move a muscle while I'm on the phone, you hear? I hear. She ain't there. I... Uh... Hey, Karen? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. So you heard on the radio. Now, look, you stay there. I want you to... I said I want you to stay where I can get hold of you in a hurry. So everybody ever pulled a job, took a chance. He ain't got me yet. No, Karen, you sit there with your hand on the lousy phone and you don't go nowhere you hear from me. You got that? Okay. Stupid dame. Well, like I was saying, we got the whole place to ourselves now. So? So, uh, what happens if I just open the door and walk out? You know what happens. You get a hole in the head. You keep talking a hole in the head, Arnie, but I'm not so sure. It's a possibility you couldn't do it, you know that? To take money out of a liquor store, that's one thing. But to shoot a Sam Schwartz in the head, this is, again, something else. Maybe you could. Maybe you couldn't. Well, you want to find out? Just take one step toward that door. You sure you're okay, Mrs. Schwartz? No, I am not okay, Lieutenant Donovan. Okay, I'm not going to be till you get my family out from that store and take that young Ernie Hoodlum away from here. We're doing what we can, Mr. Schwartz. I mean, I don't think you want us to walk in there. Sammy. Sammy! Okay, we'll have to go in now and see. Maybe it was your husband shot the other one, Mrs. Schwartz. No. Guns up our angry people. So angry you couldn't make my Sammy in a million years. The old guy's still okay. I fired over his head. A warning, like the cops do it. Tell him, Pop. It's all right. I ain't right. The shot over my head by the detergent shell. If I have to do it again, though, that's the one. You remember that out there. We can't let this go on much longer, Johnson. It's up to you whether you want the chair or a short stretch for armed robbery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it says, Arnie, you gotta decide. Yeah, he's bluffing I can't believe nothing those guys say. Hey, you know something? I'm hungry. <laughs> a healthy young animal. Every place but in the head. All right, you can knock that off. Ain't nothing wrong in my head. Give me a sandwich and a can of beer. A pleasure. What kind of sandwich? Uh, something fancy. You, you got turkey? Today, no turkey. Some delicatessen. All right, make it pastrami and cheese. And none of your lousy rat cheese. One of them French jobs or something. So long as it don't stink. All right. Pumpernickel. Well, anyway, you know something about bread. Look, now, I gotta move around some while I'm fixing the sandwich, so you shouldn't get nervous with that gun. You do your job, I'll do mine. You better make a two of them sandwiches, and I'll have the beer now. A pleasure. In the back room, I got a glass. You shouldn't like to drink out of the can. <laughs> yeah, and in the back room, you got a back door, too, I bet. Out of the can will be fine. Much obliged. Have one yourself. Live a little. Uh, today, I think better for me is a little seltzer. But uh, thank you all the same. So fix the sandwiches. 
You can have one too if you want, or yogurt or whatever. Only don't yak at me, will you? I gotta think. Yeah, that's something you're a little bit late with, the thinking. You like more stuff? Huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Believe me, a better sandwich you wouldn't get at the Waldorf Astoria. You want to know something? I'm thinking. 37 years I'm in the delicatessen business. Today is the first time I ever wished to be in something else. You know what today I'm wishing? Today I'm wishing I owned instead a drugstore. So handy would be plenty arsenic for the sandwich. No, just a little mustard. And the bread, you want butter? I'm thinking... Here's your sandwiches. So eat. Two kinds of cheese. And one imported Swiss, and the other, the best French camembert from the house. So eat. Mm. Give me another beer, will you? A pleasure. Here's your beer. Thanks. So... You got a plan from all your thinking? Yeah, I got a plan. What do you think of that? Look, I couldn't honestly wish you. Wow, these sandwiches, I'm full already. I ain't even finished one. I gotta make a phone call. My telephone is yours. Just don't get no stupid ideas. You're gonna stand like before, real still, so you don't make me nervous, okay? Any way you say. I think I got a way to get us both out of this. You and me both. What do you think of that? In my opinion, very doubtful. Stupid dame, so answer the phone, will you? She's not so stupid, maybe she don't answer. So I'll give her a couple of minutes. Don't worry, she's okay, she won't run out of me. Hey, look, you want that other sandwich? I sure ain't gonna need it. Thank you, but no, today I got a very poor appetite. Tell me, what kind of plan you got to get us both out of trouble? You'll find out when the time comes. You don't need to know now. Yeah, no matter. Tell me something. Your mother and father, they're living... I guess so. You guess so? You don't know? I ain't seen my old lady since I was a kid. She took off with a truck driver she knew my old man thinks. We never heard from her anyway. My old man's still alive, or he was last week. I don't see much of him either these days. So what's he going to say he finds out about all this? You mean when somebody finds him and sobers him up? I don't know. I expect he'll chew me out pretty good. Not about knocking off the liquor store. He won't mind about that. They're getting caught at it. That's what he'll chew me out for. Stupid, he'll say. Yeah, I don't see yet what I've done wrong. It's a terrible thing to come from such a home. You don't have to lose no sleep over me. My old man's okay. He used to knock me around a little when I was a kid, but he's all right. We had some good times. Ah, a shame, a shame. Come on, knock it off, will you? I don't need no sermons. Anyway, I gotta try Karen again. You know, the jails they got these days, it's not so bad from what I hear. Oh, boy. No, no, I mean that. Libraries with books they're loaded. Movies I hear. A movie every week. Tables for, what is that game, the little balls? Ping pong. Baseball in season. 
Not a men's club you could do worse. Well, it's the first time in my life anybody ever tried to sell me going to jail. Well, in ordinary circumstances, I wouldn't recommend it myself, but what you're mixed up in now, Ernie, these circumstances ain't ordinary at all. I gotta make my call. My telephone is yours. Like I said before, no stupid ideas. You finish with the beer, I'll throw the cans away. You don't throw nothing away. Just stand where you are and don't make me nervous. She ain't there now. She's gonna hear from me good. You know, also, they teach you a trade these days. In jail, I mean. A good, honest trade. Karen, where you been? Dad was me on the phone a minute ago. Who else? Oh, well, you picked a great time for it. All right, all right. Listen, would you? You got the heap ready? All right, so here's what you do. You get on the heap and you drive it down to Schwartz's Delicatessen. Now, hold on a sec. I'll get the address. What? What do you mean you got the address already? Oh, on the radio. No, the cops won't bother you. Listen, I got an old guy here with me, Sam Schwartz. He owns a delicatessen. I already told the cops they make a move and I shoot this old guy. Look, stupid. Who, who killed somebody? I just said I would, that's all. All right, so can I finish? All right, you get in the heap and you drive on down here. I told you, the cops won't bother you. I'll yell out the door and let them know you're coming. And they ain't to bother you unless they want a dead delicatessen owner on their hands. Yeah, so when you drive up in front of the joint, I come out with Pop and we both get in a heap and take off. You got that now? Don't ask me a lot of stupid questions. Just go. Start now. All right, I love you too, baby. You think that's going to work, this plan you're telling her? Well, why won't it? What can go wrong? What's going to happen, for example? I should decide. I don't care to make the trip. Oh, you ain't in no position to decide, Pop. Either you come along or you get a hole in the head. Yeah, so now we're back to that. If there is in you whatever it takes, you should put a hole in Sam Schwartz's head. You know what happened the last time we went into that? Sure, you shot over my head and ruined $10 worth detergent powder. So now, what we got to decide is can you shoot at my head, not over it? Don't take a chance, Pop. Well, I'll tell you now, Ernie. I ain't gonna hit you. Come on, Pop, don't be stupid. <sighs> I'm going out by the door now, Ernie. If you let me go, the police will come in and get you. And if you don't let me go, and you got to shoot me to stop me, then they come in and get you anyways. Now, you want a couple years with time off for good behavior? Or you want a chair? But that's all you got to decide, Ernie. Pop? Pop, you stay away from that door. No, Ernie. I'm going out now. Oh, you, you stupid old... What would you want to do that for? On and on, things like this couldn't go on. Somebody had to make a decision. All right, drop the gun. Uh, Put your hands up. Then they get up. Why is he down like this, lying on the floor? Why don't he say something? Here, let me have a look. I'm afraid he can't, Mrs. Schwartz. Not anymore. Emmy. What the What is he? Some kind of a nut or something? He was just going on out like... Like I didn't even have a gun. That's right, some kind of nut. Yeah. Art Stone, get this man out of here. Put the cuffs on him. Take him uptown. Yeah. That's right. Some kind of nut.
Detective has presented The Hostage, written by Fielden Farrington, produced and directed by Warren Somerville. In the cast, Jack Grimes, Jackson Beck, Ethel Everett, and Lon Clark. Audio engineers, Neil Pulse and Marty Folia. Sound technician, Ed Blaney. Script editor, Jack C. Wilson. Original music by Alexander Vlasdotsenko. Orchestra under the direction of Glenn Osser. Executive producer for Theater 5, Ted Bell. We invite your comments. Write to Theater 5, New York 23, New York. That's Theater 5, New York 23, New York. Fred Foy speaking. From January 28th, 1965, that was Theater this 5. Been You've been listening ABC to another edition production. of the Classic Gas Radio Show. Uh, as a program note, next week I will be doing a special commemorative show honoring that first Sunday in December of 1941. Once again, that's next week. The same time, I'm Sheldon Snow, and you have been listening to the Classic Gas Radio Show.